Good morning, good morning, good morning, community. I am glad to be here. Are we glad to be here? Can I hear a, a yes or an amen? Your choice. Amen. All right, perfect. A little bit of chaos. That's perfect. Um, one of the things you might have noticed was last week um, we had a time of prayer, and it was a time of prayer that we would consider more traditional for here at First Church, where there was someone who came and led us through a prayer uh, from their own words, from their own writing, from their own heart. And then there is today where we had a time of prayer that was attached to some ancient practices of participatory prayer. For some of you, this maybe felt like coming home. Maybe you grew up in a more liturgical environment. For some of you, maybe this felt very unfamiliar. In either case, we want to encourage and remind all of you that we pray in many ways and that we're able to interact with our God in all sorts of wonderful forms and methods and God is generous and big with how we interact with him. And so that's just something for us to be reminded of as Christians that there's lots of different ways for us to have conversation with our Lord and God. Um, Here's something I didn't know, Um, and it was a stat from last year. So last year, uh, it said this, young people in Canada expressed experiencing loneliness more frequently than older people. Among youth aged 15 to 24 years, nearly one in four said that they were always or often feeling alone. This compared with 15% of those that were slightly older, and then seniors aged uh, 75 and older were 14%. And so we had this interesting contrast when I read this that kind of stood out to me, that almost one quarter of youth, ages uh, 15 to 24, experienced feeling often or always lonely. And then there was another stat that came out that was in August and September of 2021, so this was quite recent in Canada, that close to half of those who said that they always felt lonely or often felt lonely, that they reported that their mental health was either fair or poor. So that just stood out to me. When you compare that to those who felt that they were rarely lonely or never lonely, they reported only having 7% fair or poor mental health. Huge, huge contrast. Um, I'm sure we've all felt that disconnect um, when we are isolated or when we are removed from one another. Those feelings of loneliness and health often go together. And this is kind of where we've been heading with our sermon series on the hospitality that we see in Scripture and the hospitality of God. Last week, we started the sermon series called Open House, and we looked at that first story in the Bible, the creation story, where we get to see that God, the creator of everything, is in fact the first host. That the gift of hospitality is in the very nature of God. Humanity's first experience of God is him making a space and a community for them to share. And then tragically, we as humans, we just mess the whole thing up. Like, that's kind of what we do if we're a little bit honest with ourselves. That we take good things and we have this tendency to just kind of overuse it or abuse it or wreck it or we need it so much that we crush it. And so we are tragic house guests in the, in the kingdom of God. 
And so we have this tension, like in Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. There's this tendency for humanity to hide and disconnect, and that runs deep in our own being as, as instinct, but also culturally. We feel an internal and an external pressure to create the perfect home, to create the perfect family, to create that perfect plan before we bring people together or bring people into our homes or into our lives. We have a hard time opening up. And this disconnection is only getting worse. Um, Did you know that modern North America, so back in the 1950s, the number of friends one person had, so the one person, like the number of friends they had, has steadily decreased since 1950. On the other hand, space in the, like in your living environment has continually gotten wider and wider and bigger and spread out. And so the question that kind of gets pushed to us, kind of pushed, put to us, is bigger rooms, less friends. That's kind of where culture has been taking us. That's kind of where we've been heading. And so with this natural desire for, to pull away, especially when our lives feel messy and screwed up, um, that there's this disconnect that we slowly move towards, and hospitality becomes more and more difficult, but more and more necessary. And I'm not even talking about hospitality to strangers. This is just us being hospitable to one another, whether it's this group over here with this group here, whichever uh, type of community that we're already living in. So that's kind of where we find ourselves. One of my favorite studies um, was done uh, by 1970s professor Abram Goldstein of Stanford University, and then further studied with Dr. Bruce Alexander from Simon Fraser University in BC. Now, we have Mr. Rat. He lived in a dark little mesh cage about the size of a piece of paper. So imagine with me, we've got ourselves a little rat. He's living in this old space. It's got musty straw. There's this little bottle filled with, you know, lukewarm water. And then every day he'd get a handful of pellets. That was his life. Then one morning he wakes up and something is a little bit different. Where there were once two, one bottle of water, there are now two bottles of water. Now, one of these bottles, he goes over, he drinks it, and it's fine. And then the other one, he tastes it, and it's dyed blue, and there's something wrong with it. And it, it burns his mouth and his throat, and then he starts to feel fuzzy and weird inside. And next thing he knows, he kind of like blacks out for a while, comes to a little bit later, and his, his cage is a mess. He's all kind of dis discombobulated. That's a word, right? I was like wanting to say discombobulated. And he is, his mind is foggy. He's stumbling, stumbling around, but it was different. There was something about it. So he goes on his day and he's thinking suspiciously. He's like looking over at, uh, at it and he, he drinks it a little bit more. And this time it's a little bit better. He kind of likes how it feels. He kind of likes the way it disconnects him from his lonely, boring environment. And over time, he starts to want it more and more. He sleeps now 
constantly. That's all he does. But he doesn't really care because he has this little bottle. So scientists, they were trying to determine, to better understand the power of chemical addiction. These rats would eventually choose morphine or heroin-laced water over normal water. They became hooked, and eventually they would die of malnutrition because all they did was live under the blue tap. They gave up eating. It was a brutal indication of the power of drugs, and it fueled a panic within all of our culture to ban these strong, terrible substances, understandably. But this research was very narrow. Because while there was no doubt that these drugs were addictive and extremely dangerous, these scientists were confused. And one of their points of confusion was with army vets, particularly during the Vietnam War. So lots of soldiers, when they were out in Vietnam, about 20% became addicted or heavily used strong opiates. So much so that they were convinced, scientists were convinced that when they would return home, that they would all be as dramatically addicted to these drugs as the rats were. And yes, there were a lot of soldiers that became long-term addicts in the U.S., and many lives were destroyed. But somehow, the vast majority of those who came home stopped never to return to using drugs. And scientists were scratching their heads. It did not make sense to them. Back to Mr. Rat. So then one day, after drinking the water and passing out, he woke up to a very strange place. He was lying on a bed of fresh cedar shavings in a box much larger than his old cage and there was bright green trees painted on these walls and there was yellow and color and it was huge they had these tubes of cardboard that they could he could run through and there were five other rats joining him so he started to play they started to hang out and as they did, chasing each other around, um, they had a great time. We're going to assume they had a great time. They didn't say we're having a great time, but they had a great time. And then eventually, though, got thirsty. He started to get headaches. And so slowly he went over to these two, and they had both. They had the normal water and they had the blue water. Went over and eyed that water suspiciously, suspiciously but only drank the normal water until the headaches were so bad that they went to the morphine-laced water, drank it, passed out, woke up, continued to play, and slowly avoided drinking from that blue water longer and longer. And within about two weeks, most of the rats no longer went back to that option at all. It was shocking, it was exciting information, it was an exciting discovery that was kind of quite new because all of the research said this is, it's inevitable. They will become hard, addicted, broken rats. But this was not the case. So this story is not a fairy tale. And they realized, and this is one of the things that they realized, the studies were all done in isolated cages. Those early studies were all done in isolation. But rats are social creatures. 
and their small cages resembled nothing like their woodland world or like, you know, the restaurant district of New York or wherever. They are social. And when they created a social cage, they created a rat park, these experiments dramatically revealed powerful truth about what was going on. That while many of the rats would still have some level of addiction, by and large, they chose to avoid it. So the rat park park did not negate prior research. Drugs were still clearly addictive, and they still harmed the rats' brains. But the rat rat park did demonstrate um, that for many, drugs were a form of escapism. And this research has proven true for us. If you take away the reason someone needs to escape, their desire for that drug may also drop. This broken world that we live in, it is a perfect mix of fear, hopelessness, disconnection, along with the ease and access to drugs, alcohol, pornography, trans fats, and other addictive options to create a truly desperate world. Fear, hopelessness, disconnection. It's a mixture of misery, this cocktail of chaos. And many of you know one or two different people that are in your world or um, that are connected to this strong, powerful fear, hopelessness, and disconnection. And I'm sure as you look at their lives, it hurts. It's a painful experience to watch others spiral into a place of misery, chaos, spiritual tyranny. And maybe their habits or their hang-ups, they don't really seem like a big deal to you. But they seem, and maybe they seem to be getting along fine. But as many of us do know, and this is the truth, getting along fine is not always fine. We all feel deep in our hearts that there is more to life than just being numb. More to life than just escape. And so maybe some of you today feel lost or trapped in some form of escapism, or even maybe you've started to wonder, perhaps I'm addicted. Well, there's good news for us today. Would you turn with me to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25? Built into this text, as you find your place, built into this text is a powerful response to the challenges that we are facing. It is good news that science can only scratch the surface of. So let me read to you uh, this passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Three exhortations. 
The author appeals to us three different times within this passage. And for me, I consider this one of the greatest simple packages of of encouragement and call and challenge for us as a church to hold on to. It is timely for us as a community. So if you have Bibles with you and you don't mind marking it up, feel free to open it up and circle all of the let us statements. In this passage, there are three of them, and I'd like to highlight these. The very first says, let us draw near to God. For those of you who know a lot of Bible stories, typically, here's a question for you. What happens when a person draws near to the Lord? Typically, in the Old Testament, they would fall down on their knees. They would be overcome by the power, majesty, holiness of God. They would confess, like, like Isaiah 6-5 would confess, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Moses may be on the mountain when he was there. Or Peter, when he first meets Jesus, and there's this profound miracle, he drops to his knees, and he's overcome with awe and wonder. Or Paul, on the road to Damascus, who has the encounter with the living Lord. Wonder, awe, worship, this reverent fear of the Lord, the great and good and holy God. Like the creatures and the elders in the book of Revelation, where they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is the awe of God that reorders our hearts. It puts fear in its place. When we compare the Lord Almighty to the fears that we live with day by day, they do not compare. And it's not that God is this terrifying experience, but that he is so powerful and beautiful and holy. Fear of failure, fear of what others think, fear of sickness, fear of pain, fear of death, while all understandable, do not have the same hold on those who are captured by the awe and wonder of our God. When we enter into unrestrained worship, with sincere hearts, when we come before God just as we are, we are transformed by his presence. We are humbled, but so are our fears. Our fears are also muted in the presence of a holy, powerful God. And what's more is God's love is poured out on his people, and it is lavish, and it is healing. Scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love, a love that can only come from our God. It is not a man-made thing. It comes from the Father. And so there's a lot that we could say about the necessity of worship. The necessity of worship as an antidote, as a response to the fear that we experience day by day in our lives and in our culture. The second, let us. Let us hold unswervingly. That is one of the hardest words for me to say. I practiced it so many times and I was so paranoid that I would say it in some other way, but I'm doing good so far. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. 
For he who promised is faithful. Um, It only took two times for me to do this. I locked my keys in my car. How many of us have done that? Yep, confession. Yep. It only took twice for me to close the door, see the keys, have nothing I can do about it either to call AMA or rummage around and find another key. It got to the point, though, because it happened, like, honestly, it happened within, like, a two-week period of time. This was several years ago. That I now have this weird habit of when I close the door, I'm, like, literally looking at my keys in my hand as I close the door. I'm, like, so paranoid that I'm, like, is it in my hand? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay, close, close the door. Okay, I'm good. I'm safe. Put it in my pocket. It only took a couple of times for me to hold unswervingly to these keys I desperately did not want locked in my car. Um, So that's one way we could think about it. But how do we hold on to ideas? They just don't stick for some of us. For me, like, I I guarantee you that if I were to try to think back to, like, grade 10 math, which I did very well in, in grade 10, not a chance I would fail miserably. I don't remember any of the formulas or any of the whatevers. I couldn't do it. Or I couldn't tell you the first thing about mitochondria. I had to relook that up just to make sure that that was a biological term. So it is some something in some part of a body. You guys would know. Some of you are like, Trent, seriously, like, come on. Everybody knows what a mitochondria is. I forget. But... We forget. It's hard for us to hold on to information. It's hard for us to hold on to ideas. So what, what is one of those ways that we remember? We tell it, and we tell it again. We retell it, and we repeat it. And even better, if we can put it into a song or a story, if I had invented a, like, here comes the mitochondria. I, I'm making that up right now. You clearly know that. Um, maybe I would have remembered all of the components to mitochondria, but I wouldn't remember, and we don't remember unless we put effort in and we work at it. So when the writer of Hebrews tells us to hold on unswervingly to the hope we profess, we shouldn't ignore the word profess as part of that sentence. So I don't know about you, but telling and retelling the story of Jesus brings me hope. Telling and retelling the story of people's lives dramatically changed by the love of God through the person of Jesus reminds me of the hope that I have in him as well. Even telling you right now that Jesus brings hope, that he is good, that he is alive and he is healing and he desires to transform all of our lives, even that right now gives me hope It pulls me out, out, out of hopelessness and that kind of thinking. And the promises of God that we put our hope in, promises of eternal life, promises of a world made unbroken, a promise of true justice and mercy, all of these promises that hang on to Jesus and are made real and possible in the person of Jesus. When we talk about these things, when we profess them, it builds up hope in our lives and it combats the hopelessness that so easily grabs hold and pulls us down. 
There's this picture in Isaiah 11:6. It says this, the wolf will lie down or will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. What an impossible image of peace. But it's an image of peace that when we know who Jesus is, carries weight and depth and truth and hope. When we tell his story, when we tell the story of those transformed by him, we become a community of hope. But how can we ever tell that story? How can we ever communicate that hope if we haven't made space for the other, if we haven't made space for the other to feel safe and welcome, loved and seen. It is impossible to hear a story if you're so busy being worried or concerned or disconnected. And if we can be a church that has arms open, then we can tell the story of hope. The hope that we have cannot remain hidden behind closed doors. Fear hopelessness, disconnection. Let's jump to the third. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The message written by Eugene Peterson, um, transliteration of the Bible, says it this way, and I love the way he says it. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. I love it. Let's see how inventive we can be. Our hospitality that God is calling for us to step into does not have to be narrowly defined We are called, we can be creative with how we welcome and love others, how we make space for other people, how we make space for each other. This is a beautiful part of what it means for us to be the church. And I love how the book of Hebrews, he has this moment where he's like, be creative in how we can spur one another on. And just so you don't forget... Let's do this in community. He says, um, let's see, let me just read it again. Um, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. There's this connection between our creativity in hospitality and meeting together. So those soldiers who came back from war, who had been using drugs while they were away, but stopped when they got home, the overwhelming majority of them, 95% of them, they all had one thing in common. They had a home, family, or community to come back to and to get involved in. That was the one main element that stood out that marked the difference between uh, war vets that came home and stayed remaining in in addictive situations or were free is they came home to connection. They came home to community. They came home to a place to belong where they could have community and involvement. And those who were not able to re-enter society well, 
Those are the ones that often found themselves in addictive situations. Now, I'm saying this in broad strokes. Addiction is very complicated. It's nuanced. It's an ongoing challenge. But it remains to be very clear that hospitality is a gift for us to offer a world that is disconnected and needs connection. Hospitality creates the space, the table which where we can share hope. It provides a critical link in the chain of helping pull people up out of the depths and into the light of day. And this is becoming more and more vital all the time, as those stats indicated. But here's a cool little bit in hospitality. This is my encouragement to all of us. And here's a question I want you to ponder, and it's not rhetorical. When God commanded the Israelites to practice hospitality to strangers, when Jesus told his disciples to walk that extra mile, to embrace the other, so when God asks us to show hospitality, is he asking it for the benefit of the other, or is he asking it for the benefit of us? Think about all of those times where you've reached out to someone else, invited them in. What was that experience that you you had? What was it that you received in return? There is a hassle to hospitality. It's difficult. It's frustrating. But when we step into that other space, when we make room for the other, God is at work doing something profound in our lives. There is a joy. There is a deep sense that we did something powerful beautiful, and even courageous when we practice hospitality. We experience the joy of becoming a bridge or channel of God's hospitality. Our natural tendency is to pull away, and it's hard work to be hospitable to one another. But when we do that, when we step in, we get to see that God is at work in our lives as well. I think this is the secret of Hebrews uh, 13.2, where it says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. There is this quiet promise that exists through the entire story of God. That when you make space for the other, the neighbor, the estranged estranged family member, or the stranger, that you are participating in heaven coming down, that you are a kingdom worker, an agent of light. You feel that joy and that sense of God helping pull you up out of a place of selfishness and into a place of love. I think that we need to believe Jesus when he said in Matthew 25, he was having this conversation um, with some elite folk, and they, they were asking, and this is how it goes, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, um, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? Um, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? So they're wrestling with this, and then the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we reach out 
And when we are hospitable to one another, we are participating in a link, a chain that is pulling people up out of fear, hopelessness, and disconnection. But the unique and special miracle in it all is that we get something from that as well. God is able to do something in our lives when we, by faith, reach out to others. So I would encourage you to decide today that when you host another, consider that you might be hosting, in fact, an angel, a heavenly messenger. Last week I suggested to you that um, because we are a welcoming church, let us work on that and become better at that. Let us learn how to lean into our strength and build on it. And I suggested that we could try thinking about God first as as the first host. Think about him that way. Pray to him about that. Talk to him. And then make a list of ways that you could reach out, ways that you could be hospitable. Well, this week, I would like to encourage us to take one step further, to ask the Holy Spirit to inspire us to be creative with our hospitality. How can we make space for another? It might not be inviting someone over, but it could be something. And the Holy Spirit, the living God, desires to teach us and guide us as a community to become a more hospitable people. So when we take that simple next step, I encourage you, consider reaching out and trusting that God will have a divine moment for you. That as you actually take that step, God is going to do something for all of us. It's an exciting thing to be a part of helping people live well. It's a joy for us to participate in fighting against fear, hopelessness, and disconnection. And that's my encouragement for all of us this week. May we be a people of hospitality. I'm going to invite uh, the worship team to come up. We're going to sing one of the songs, a brief one, and then I'm going to close with a benediction. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would, by your creativity, help us to know how to be hospitable. Lord, teach us to be a people that are in awe of you and worship you, and it dispels fear. Teach us to be a people who talk about you, who celebrate you, who let the hope that comes from you, Jesus, uh, go to others. Help us to be a people that share these things. And Lord, may we be a people who connect, drawing other people into a community of love, encouragement, and support. We live in a disconnected world. Lord, you are calling us to be an antidote to that challenge. So Lord, as we close the service, may you help us to sing songs of worship and praise your name. Amen. Amen.